you ask a like four-year-old to like draw you a picture, they're not like, hmm, should it be a prince or a princess or yellow or blue? They'll just draw. And somewhere in our lives, we learned to second guess ourselves. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm sitting down with Nonia Collier to talk about career changes, entrepreneurship, and even improv. A lot of times we think of like failure as bad, but when it comes to improv, it's funny. Nonia's not a professional actress, but her career has always required improvisation. Right now, she's working as the chief of staff at Metro Corp Media, the publisher of Philadelphia Magazine. Before that, we had two days notice to reach out to about 10,000 people within a specific neighborhood that there's a West Nile virus outbreak. She was working in New York City's public health department as a community organizer. And Nonia's career path is a testament to that mentality, whether she's working for city government or studying finance at Wharton or creating her own startup. For her, career is an exploration, like improv. I do feel like a lot of times we treat our careers and our job choices as, yeah, like this is going to be a life sentence. And I'm like, no, no, think of this as this is a road trip and you're choosing the next destination and you have choice in regards to how long you want to stay at that destination. Hear Nonya's story now on Philly Who. Stay tuned. This episode of Philly Who is supported by Pita Chip, the fast, casual Middle Eastern restaurant inspired by Syrian street food. It's just like other fast, cash spots where you can build your own salad, rice bowl, or wrap. But this one has tasty shawarma, veggies, falafel, hummus, and flavorful sauces and spices. They've got great gluten-free and plant-based options, too. Pita Chip is family-owned by two Syrian immigrants who have been in Philly for 25 years, and this year, they were featured in Philly Mag's list of best shawarma in Philly. Their two locations are on North Broad near Temple, Goals, and on Market Street between Penn and Drexel, right next door to the Philly Who Studio. Order pickup or delivery today via pitachipphilly.com or via the Pita Chip mobile app. And if you use promo code PhillyWho, you'll get 15% off your first order. That offer is not valid for catering, which, by the way, they also crush. So hit them up if your office is tired of the usual pizza and bagels. Big thanks to Omar Muhanad and the Pita Chip family for supporting Philly Who. All right, so this interview is going to be a little different than other episodes of Philly Who. Now, what I generally try to achieve when editing these conversations is an episode arc that serves to tell the guest's story in a way that highlights common threads and themes. It'll have a beginning that sets the background, a middle with some sort of event or discovery, and an ending that ties things up and maybe sets the stage for an exciting future. And oftentimes, the Philly doer has created or achieved something, and we choose that one thing to be the main topic that the story revolves around. This story is a little different. This one isn't as much about what the guest has done with her life, but in how she approaches doing. 
Now, don't get me wrong, Nonya Collier has achieved a lot. She's currently a chief of staff at a major media company, and she's also spent time as a startup founder, as a public health official, as a corporate strategist at a national bank, and even as a college professor. She's got a bachelor's degree in sociology and an MBA from Wharton, too. She's been all over the place, and at first, I was intimidated by Nonya's story because I couldn't find that obvious common thread. And if I'm being totally honest, I actually interviewed Nonya twice for this episode. Finally, though, at the end of the second interview, as you'll hear, we started talking about Nonya's love of improv, which is where you create or perform something spontaneously or without preparation. And that's what I realized is so extraordinary about Nonya. The thread is that there's no thread. And if you think about it, that's really how life is. No matter how much you plan or what you want to do, you always need to improvise. And most of the time, life doesn't fit the neat, tidy story arc, no matter how much you edit. For Nonya, the only constant throughout her story so far is change. And as you'll hear, that's exactly how she likes it, because change is what she's passionate about. She's been with us here in Philly for a number of years, but she actually grew up down 95 in Baltimore in a family that was also always changing. I have seven siblings. In my childhood, my grandparents lived with us. Um, my mom's a dentist, my dad was a psychiatrist. And then as my grandparents moved away and my siblings went to college, I also had the experience of being an only child or you know, being in a very small household. So by the time I um, my dad passed away when I was um, nine. My siblings, you know, moved out as they went to college and, and got older. And as my grandparents retired, they moved away. Um, so there was this point where, you know, we we went from 10 people in a household and then we went down to three people in our household. By the time I went to high school, it was just me and my mom. What was the Baltimore that you grew up in like? It inspired every drive of social justice in my body. Like every single thing that I wanted to do related to social justice was because of something that I saw or experienced in Baltimore. On one hand, there's so much knowledge and so much, um, you know, it's a great city for entrepreneurship and small businesses. It's a great city for education, having Johns Hopkins there. And at the same time, there's such immense poverty and even now when we talk about the opioid crisis as being somewhat of a newer phenomenon in a lot of cities and for a place like Baltimore, it's, that's been what the problem that they've been struggling with for decades. What were some of the things that you saw that inspired this drive? You know, knowing some of my uh, classmates where their parents were murdered or, you know, taking the bus to school and, you know, being around a lot of people who had drug addictions and just seeing what that looked like. And, you know, I'd say in a lot of ways, I, I had the experience of going to a private school and going to a public school and seeing that in this like city that has both immense poverty and, you know, like great wealth and knowledge and resources, that both communities are pretty sheltered from each other. So, you know, you could be in one part of the city and I would talk to some of like my white classmates who really didn't know other black people in the city. The city's about 70% African-American. Um, when I look back 
on my experience growing up, I guess even after I lived in Baltimore, in a lot of ways just feeling like I never fully felt like I fit into kind of the boxes that existed. But I just was so inspired by the fact that there was huge problems in the city and I felt like there was enough resources in the world that could fix them. And so you felt that you could be the one to bring those resources to those people, right? Because you're, you're seeing opportunity in struggle, right? You're seeing that rather than just seeing the struggle and bemoaning that, you're seeing, wow, look at all, all this room for improvement, yeah. right? So was it that early on, like middle school, high school, that you decided that you wanted to be somebody who actually affects this change? Coming out of high school, I definitely not did not want to be somebody who affected change. <laughs> who I did wanted, you want to be? <laughs> I wanted the problems to be fixed, and I thought the problems were fixable. I think coming out of high school, I still really wanted to just fly under the radar. Uh, you know, I did not have a drive towards excellence. I was just kind of was like, I want to lay low, you know, do makeup and have a rock band. And I don't want that rock band to be famous because yeah, I, like, I couldn't wait, handle low. the pressure. <laughs> <laughs> so you wanted to be in a rock band and do makeup? Yes. Um, and I did not really want fame. I just really wanted to fly under the radar. I think I, I did not really have an, a drive to be the one who fixes things. It was more of, I think these things could be fixed. I care about how, you know, how I could contribute, but not really seeing in any, there was a possibility for being the leader. Nonia would attend Spelman College in Atlanta. While there, she wasn't exactly sure what to study, but being around ambitious people started to get her thinking about her own ambition. When I went to Spelman for college, for one, I saw so many of my classmates at Spelman were really, really driven to be extraordinary. Nobody was driven to be normal. Everyone wanted to be extraordinary. In a way, I think they made it look cool. Like, oh, wow, yeah, you know, maybe I should pursue, you know, a Fulbright scholarship or perhaps I should, you know, try to be the top of my class, not just stumble into, you know, academics. Um, I guess in my first couple of weeks of my freshman year, that's when 9-11 happened. And I think following from that, uh, coming into the next presidential election, I think was really, really fascinating. This would be the 2004 election. This was a really fascinating time for seeing national issues present themselves very locally. And in a city like Atlanta, which was a very heavily Democratic city, but within a very Republican state, you know, how those issues were presented and how do you make this relevant for people was something I was really intrigued by. So I got really involved with um, registering people to vote and campaigning for the election. So after graduating, how did you go about educating, inspiring, and enacting? So I took a fellowship in the Bay Area called the Greenlining Fellowship, and it's an organization that does uh, community organizing and public policy. And I was really interested in health policy at the time, just, you know, how can we essentially address infectious diseases and how... Why health? I think after my dad's death, I was really focused on just what can we do to improve the time between life and death? So not so much about prolonging, but 
you know, how can you help people live longer? So, you know, helping people make the right choices with more information. And I wanted to really understand how could I do one, one of those. At the time I was in college, I remember telling someone that my dream job was to be Sanjay Gupta, who was the health correspondent on CNN. I would just say changed very much from, you know, the girl who wanted to fly under the radar. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I want to be on CNN. <laughs> be the expert on CNN. That's a big change. <laughs> yeah. So soon after your time in California, you'd go to New York City. I loved living in California. I had a great experience, but I am an East Coast girl. Luckily, one of the alumni from the position that I worked with in California had this job opening in New York City. It was for the city health department working in community affairs. So it aligned really well with what I wanted to do of engaging communities, educating them about health issues, educating them about how they can work with the city and be a partner. And I, oh man, this was such a dream job for me at that moment. I had so much fun, you know, going back to your question in regards to, you know, what was it like? There was definitely times where I was very nervous about presenting certain issues, issues that are difficult to talk about. To who? So we worked with a lot of community organizations and this involved both neighborhood organizations. So, you know, this organization for this block in the Bronx, as well as for organizations that were focused on specific issues like, you know, nonprofits focused on, you know, maternal care or something along those lines. Some of the organizations saw us as allies and some of the organizations had a very poor view of the city and the city health department. So, you know, I would go forth knowing that perhaps they're excited about this and perhaps they're really, really not excited about this um, and, you know, will put me on the (laughs) chopping block. My public speaking skills were also very much influenced by what will it be like to connect with this group? Are they willing to receive me or do they see me as kind of the bad guy, you know? During this time, as you're, as you're working as a public servant, really to help communities, what were your win moments? Like what were the moments where you're like, yes, this is why this is my dream job. We were working on a West Nile virus outbreak that happened in the city almost every summer at that time frame. And this is pre-social media for government. So we had two days notice to reach out to about 10,000 people within a specific neighborhood that there's a West Nile virus outbreak and that West Nile virus can cause meningitis and encephalitis and that, you know, we would do pesticide spraying in the neighborhood, but people should be protecting themselves from the pesticides. Pesticides aren't as bad as meningitis, but it could still not be great for you. Long message to put on a flyer. Yeah, that's that's hard to convey. (laughs) Explaining meningitis at, you know, at third grade reading level is, you know, it's not something you can just, you know, put out in a tweet or, you know, it, it actually takes time to to get not just to get the messaging right, but to get people engaged. And, you know, what does this mean for them? What does this mean for their families? You know, what we did is we worked with about 200 community partners to engage them and helping them get the word out, you know, email listservs and putting up flyers. And one of the things I really enjoyed about the job as a win moment was um, I had a team of interns. We had them knocking on doors, going to senior centers. 
And it just was meant so much to me that to see the people that we were reaching out to go tell their friends and to really see that, you know, I guess viral moments in action, um, but specifically as it relates to something that, yeah, could really impact people's health. So to see, you know, we're spreading the word, we're educating people and they're going to tell other people to take an action, to protect themselves, to, you know, protect their families. It was a really, really proud moment. You see people saying, oh, I'm going to tell my neighbor and, you know, I'm going to tell the guy who lives next door, you know, so that and was really cool. they went and knocked cool. on the door. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was cool. Now, it, it wasn't too long then until you just, you went back to school. Um, I remember uh, just being there during the recession and obviously the city is dependent on tax dollars. So we're seeing, oh, oh goodness, thousands of people are losing their jobs now. And... I was really fascinated with the planning that went with doing more with less. So, you know, trying to figure out, okay, well, can we make this more efficient? Is there a way that we could use technology to replace this part of our business? So I was really, really intent on going to business school because I felt like that was the best way for me to learn strategic planning. So you had been thinking about going to business school for a while. I meet some people who say, oh, I want to go to grad school and they apply like two weeks later and then they're in and, you know, in two months. For me, this was years of a journey. So with a bachelor's degree in sociology and a few years experience in public health, she decided to get an MBA at Penn. Now, you didn't have the traditional background of an MBA student, right? You didn't have finance or economics or whatever. Why an MBA is a big deal? Why did they accept you? I don't know why they accepted me. Having a non-traditional professional background was intimidating. And it was also, I think, just more difficult, like on an academic level. When you applied, did you think you'd get in? I had had no reason to think I wouldn't get in. I mean, I, I had good grades. Yeah. I was intent on what I wanted to get out of it. I didn't really have a lot of doubts about my ability to succeed coming into the program after meeting other people who were applying. I knew that I was different than a lot of people who are pursuing the degree. So after getting the Wharton MBA, you would go into the banking. Coming into business school, my intent was to stay in social impact. So I was fascinated with other aspects of social impact. I came into school. I did my internships. They were all economic development related and still in the social impact space. And then I kind of came to this point where I said, my first job in high school, maybe even middle school, was healthcare related. I worked at my mom's dental office, okay. helping calling insurance companies to get oh, <laughs> payments. <God. laughs> yeah, it was not fun. But I thought this would be a good time to just try something new. And what I called it was my professional study abroad. Mm. Uh-huh. So I never really intended to leave healthcare and to leave really making change around health as a career. I mean, I still feel like being a community organizer is a big part of my identity. I just felt like, oh, well, just try something for a little while. So I think that kind of reflects what when people actually study abroad, it changes their perspective in such a way that it really never ends. So how did your perspective change by going into, you know, working for a large bank? 
So when I first went to work at TD Bank, I was in their community development venture capital group. The day-to-day work was definitely finance-related work. In a lot of ways, I think I was already very well prepped for being in an environment where I didn't feel like I fit in because I grew up in Baltimore. I didn't feel like I always fit the culture of like a large corporate bank, but I cared about the work and I knew why I was there and I knew what I wanted to learn. And I felt like I was still a part of making an impact to something and creating a change towards something. What's interesting about this is on one hand, the way you describe this journey feels very calculated. It also feels like I was just kind of like you know, learning and figuring it out and exploring. So at this point, did you did you see an arc to this? No, I did not see an arc. I couldn't really piece it together. But going into different jobs, different roles, I mean, I knew I was I wanted a challenge. And so the opportunity to try something new was part of that challenge. So I had confidence that five or 10 years down the road, I would be able to piece it together. So I was like, it might not make sense now. I remember talking to some of my friends, community organizers, and I'm like, are you guys going to hate me if I work at a bank? And they were like, no, of course not. It's like, great. But yeah, I, I knew that there would be a point where I could explain it. And then other than that, I was like, how much do you really, if I were looking at my career 30 years in the future, how much time do you need to explain one year here, one year there? So I, I just, I didn't really doubt that it would make sense somehow. We're talking a lot about your career. I guess when you think about your life, how much weight do you put on your career? Like, is that something that drives you primarily? At the time, yes. From where I am now, I think I have a much more holistic view of what's most important to me, how I align my time to my priorities. And that means also how do I fit in my work hours, my stress level into a compartment that still allows me to focus on the other priorities of my life. I mean, I'd say when I look back to the earlier parts of my career, I never admitted it, but work was the one most important thing. And I didn't say that, but all of my sleepless nights were because of something work-related. I had a lot of anxiety around work and not being good enough. And I think that made it hard for me to actually compartmentalize work because I felt good enough in the other areas. And then the work just became a source of just not feeling like there was ever enough I could do. Compared to what? Like, who's judging you on what's good enough? Is it you? Yeah, just my own perception. But uh, now when I think about my life and my time and my priorities, putting time into my family is extremely important to me, making sure that I'm there. And most of my family lives in other states. So that means just even making time to travel. I think play. I do improv comedy. it, It has brought so much joy to my life. And when I don't have it, when I, you know, if I have to miss a week here, there to travel, I feel like I'm missing something like, man, I did not laugh for three consecutive hours this week. What the hell? 
how did you get into improv comedy? How did that come to be? Because I don't, I don't hear any performance so far in the story, right? So where did this come from? So after I left financial services, I started Pad Porter, my own company. It was very, very, um, I got, I experienced a lot of burnout with Pad Porter. And one thing that I hear from a lot of entrepreneurs is that having a startup, especially bootstrapped sole founder, is that it can really take a toll on your social life. You know, that one, I was networking, but all for work. And I had less time for my friends. I had less time to, you know, visit people out of state. And I remember shortly after I decided, okay, I'm going to put Pad Porter on the back burner. I went to a friend's engagement party and I was experiencing so much social anxiety. And I'm around some of my closest friends and, you know, a whole bunch of associates and they're trying to introduce me to people. And I'm really feeling that, oh, what do I say? Feeling that. Had you felt that before in your life? No, no. That's why it I was really. Just after this run of isolation yeah. while you were building a startup by yourself. Yes. And wow. I had so a lot of time with my startup where I was working by myself. And I feel like it just made me rusty with, you know, just the natural organic feeling of being around great people. And so anyway, just talking to a friend, they recommended improv. It's a great thing for getting out of your comfort zone. And from the first class, I was like, this is it. I'm hooked. So, you know, I started taking classes and it had, it really, I can go on and on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let's go back a little bit to the startup time. So you're at a bank. At what point did you start to feel the entrepreneurial itch? I did start to wonder, I'm putting so much time into helping this bank come up with new innovations. Am I investing in my own ideas? And at the time, I didn't really have one idea when I first was starting to wonder this. I was like, I don't, I don't actually know what I'd want to invest in, but I know I want to invest in myself. So, you know, fast forward a couple of months, I came up with an idea based on my own personal experiences. I did not have a website. I didn't have a customer, but I just decided I'm going to leave my job and try this. Wait, you left before you even started? Yes. I had an idea. I had a name. And an idea and a name. That's it. What was the idea? So the the name of the company was Pad Porter. The idea was helping city residents, specifically homeowners, with just handling all the different services that they need for their home. I found like a lot of people, busy working professionals were struggling to manage home life. And, you know, whether that's maintenance and, you know, getting packages and cleaning and all these different things that they need for their home. And that a lot of people wanted this concierge service without actually having Yeah. That. Were you a homeowner? Yeah. Okay. So you were feeling this pain as well. I'd say I really enjoyed building something and specifically getting from like blank paper to something that's launched and then doing the sales and, you know, basically getting the word out there. It felt very much like, you know, what I was doing at the health department, but now just for my own idea. And I felt like it was still making a difference to the quality of life of people of, you know, just giving them more time back in their day, taking these painful things like moving that are super stressful for people and making it delightful and easy. So I really enjoyed that part. Looking back on it, I think the burnout came from one, 
not having enough help for things or not lining up enough people to help me grow. Like I look back on it really fondly and just in regards to the like building the momentum. Was it hard for you to leave that venture after getting burned out and deciding that you had had enough? It wasn't. Pad Porter, you know, kind of switching the business model. At the time, I had gone through a, a big breakup at the same time. And I just looked at my life and I really wasn't happy. I didn't like the toll that it was taking on my, you know, just my ability to spend time with my friends and family. And so the next chapter was media, right? Yes. And that's today's chapter. Yes. So what intrigued you by going into media? When I was in financial services that, you know, that was shifting. They're looking at bringing in new technology. And, uh, you know, when I was in healthcare, same thing. And I knew that there was learnings and insights that I had from these other industries that I could apply to media. I really liked the idea of also working with creatives because a lot of the people in my family had more creative backgrounds. I mean, I I love information and education. And to me, so much of media is not just content as a product. It, I mean, it changes people's lives when they have education, when they have new knowledge. So um, that was exciting. Now, you originally came to Philadelphia, like moved here when you went to Penn, right? Yes. Why did you stay? I was anticipating moving to D.C. There was an HR mix-up at TD, but it just so happened that the office that I was going to be placed in, the only office that did this community development venture capital, which I was really, really excited about. And it was one block from my apartment in Philadelphia. So I said, I'll stay in Philadelphia. But at the time I was at, I'll stay just for six months. And then that six months after I graduated, I really fell in love with Philly. I was like, this is cool. I had met more people in like different aspects of the city. I actually really enjoy professional Philly more than student. I want to explore that. So how is professional Philly different from student Philly? A lot of students have a more diminished view of the city than, you know, when I actually graduated school and I met more people who are working in the city. I feel like there was a much more positive view of the city than when I I was a student where a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to move back to where my family's from or, you know, move here for a job. So when I graduated, I feel like for one, I actually experienced brotherly love because, again, in my student bubble, I wasn't really spending as much time with local Philadelphians. I also appreciated that the city had these nooks and crannies of, you know, just like finding, you know, just really like minded people and and not just limited for myself that I would talk to other people and said, oh, yeah, I found a whole bunch of other Bobby Brown enthusiasts or, <laughs> you know, I don't know that there were so many places where people found community. Yeah. And I found that really cool because, yeah, I didn't experience that as a student. Your work now in media is specialized locally, right? So MetroCorp mm-hmm. has Philly Magazine, Boston Magazine. Yep. What do you see as the challenge of local media? There's multiple challenges. One, I feel like there's a lot of pressure from the national companies. And and I would say not just national companies like a Hearst or a large media, but even thinking about that a local consumer who, you know, was otherwise, you know, looking in this magazine or looking at this website could be spending more time on, you know, YouTube with an influencer who's three or four states away or 
across the world, there's a lot of aspects of media that are really, really decentralized. People have a lot of choices with where they get content and information and that it's not just larger media companies. It's that, well, yeah, there are between influencers and blogs and, you know, Instagram channels. And, you know, there's so much to choose from. And I'd say to a certain extent, consumers may enjoy or not enjoy making a lot of those choices. Perhaps they're saying, okay, you know what? I'm only going to listen to, um, you know, these three podcasts and only watch these two shows. And they're kind of like tuning out the options. And then on the flip side, you have some folks where they say, oh, I'm just scrolling through whatever shows up in Google News. And there's, you know, very little loyalty to any one particular channel. And I think that local media in a lot of ways is we're contending with both. What is your what are your win moments as the chief of staff of MetroCorp? I guess just to give some context, I'd say the top parts of my role are one, working on our new initiatives. So, you know, areas where we're testing out new ideas, kind of getting some new programs to launch. Second is working on business strategy. And third is talent and culture. So the work itself has a lot of variety. One of the projects I'm really excited about, I feel like I'm in the midst of a win moment. I don't feel like it has a clear start and end date is we've recently brought on a team to help us uh, launch digital marketing services. We work with a lot of small businesses um, as clients and, you know, help whether it's uh, doctors or dentists or wedding professionals who want to get their name out in the local market. We've brought in digital marketing consultants and it's really exciting to be getting this from a blank canvas to an idea and a strategy to now having a team to deploy this and bringing in folks who have different skill sets all to help roll this out. I can't say that I've completed the win moment because mm-hmm. I'm still in the midst of it. Yeah. I want to go back to improv. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, you mentioned how that that helped has helped you. You know, you had that that moment as an entrepreneur where you were isolated. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, including yours truly, yeah. feels that. You know, mm-hmm. when you're just putting your heart and soul and everything into a business or a company or something, you you lose so many other aspects of life. And that's almost a detriment to not only you, but the business as well, because you're not as well-rounded. You don't come back rested, that kind of thing. So would you recommend improv to entrepreneurs that are feeling burnout? I totally would. I can say in my personal experience, one of the things I really got out of doing improv is in like our first classes, we would do a lot of concentration style games where everyone goes around and says one thing and we're kind of all doing it in a timed manner. And then you know, when someone would mess up or forget what they were going to say or stumble with the words, everyone would clap. And one of the things that the instructor you know, said was that a lot of times we think of like failure as bad. But when it comes to improv, it's funny. Like that's the moment where everyone laughs or, the, you know, like... There's joy in those moments and it really, I think, changed my perspective. Like there'd be days where I would go into meetings and I'd be like, I just didn't really get my full point across as smoothly as I wanted. And then I'd hear like the round of applause and like the comfort, the overwhelming comfort that comes with, okay, yeah, pick myself up. You know, as much as they say 
to entrepreneurs fail fast. Like, I think that so long as we attribute failure as pain, we're not actually able to experience that. I think once you get to the point where you're attributing, you know, like, yeah, oh, that's funny. You know, everyone, round of applause, start the game again. And that that it be just becomes this way of that failure is more like exercise as opposed to like pain. I was playing with like my nieces and nephews and it just really changed my mindset of like, you ask a like four-year-old to like draw you a picture and they don't second guess themselves. You know, they'll just make up something on the spot. They're not like, hmm, should it be a prince or a princess or yellow or blue? They'll just draw. And somewhere in our lives, we learned to second guess ourselves. And we learned, oh, I should be afraid of messing up. And so I think if we start approaching it as, well, maybe we need to create fast. Maybe it's focused on just the creation and that essentially every pivot you make, every change you make is just a new form of creation. It's just a new piece of paper with a new picture drawn on it. And that it's not really about failure at all. Yeah. That reminds me of a tweet that I saw from a electronic music DJ. Mm-hmm. It was advice for other electronic music DJs. And I'm a musician and he tweeted something and his name is Porter Robinson. He said, the mistake that a lot of musicians make is that they sit down and say, I want to make a song and that that's their goal. Where he says, the difference is your goal should be to sit down for two hours mm. and do something with music. And if it becomes a song, great. Yep. And if it doesn't, have your goal to do it again next Saturday, you know? Yep. So the the goal is to do, not to, not the outcome of doing, you know? So totally. I, I think that that's, I've been thinking about that, that sort of concept a lot lately. And it sounds pretty similar to what you're saying. Like, don't worry so much about whether what you wind up doing is a pass or fail based on what you thought before. Worry about just getting into the room and doing it. As chief of staff at Philly Mag, thinking about, okay, new policies we're creating around the workplace or new business strategies that, yeah, they're, you know, we're going to create and we'll create other things on top of that. But there's not this thing of um, real, what if we fail behind it? It's just, okay, what are other things that we can create to refine this? And then also in, you know, my personal life and I'm on improv team and, you know, even as our improv team manager (laughs) that like, okay, there is no, there is no sense of this will mess up or this will go wrong or it's just really just trusting that um, the skills that we need are already within within us, yeah. already within. You're the manager us. of the improv team. That's incredible. The fact that <laughs> you're you're leading that's amazing because uh, yeah. improv is is intimidating. You know what? I feel like uh, a lot of people tell me that, and I'm like, if you're spending so much time laughing, the nervousness really yeah. does go away. So I encourage a lot of people to try improv. There's a lot of science around how play makes us stronger humans and how this play helps us use parts of our brain that help us adapt, adapt more to stress, adapt more to conflict. Um, so it's, it's good for you. Not to belabor improv too much, but I, I see a, a larger theme in your story, I think. I think the whole time you've been doing improv, right? I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, and not in the way that you didn't have a plan, but in the way that you just were just trying stuff out and throwing stuff against the wall and seeing if it would fit when you were doing, you were in California doing deals about like energy and then you were in public yeah. health in New York. And then you said, all right, well, never mind. I'm going to go get a, a Wharton MBA. Okay. Now I'm going to be in banking. Now I'm yeah. going to do a startup. Like, 
that's all improv, right? Yes, I I'll subscribe to that. Um, <laughs> I think one of the things I've learned through improv is yeah, the importance of like one just say something, try something. I want people to feel that sense of it's okay. You know, I can go out, I can do more, you know, and to turn off that whatever muscle we built in our brains that says, you know, I should second guess myself. I want more people to be able to turn that down and yeah, just trust your instincts on what you need to say or what you want to say. Tell me about the workshop you're developing for improv and entrepreneurs. So is that something that you're looking further into how to leverage improv to teach entrepreneurs? Yes. So I'm building a workshop that helps people specifically get from idea to launch. I feel like a lot of times people struggle with that, like second guessing, oh, is this the right, you know, market fit? You know, should I be going after seniors or, you know, baby boomers? And I really want to help folks get from that, you know, basically the blank canvas to launch. This course will help people get from idea to launch in one weekend. It will be a very intense weekend, but it will also be very fun because it's going to be using a lot of interactive techniques and the techniques that I've learned from improv, which I really feel like improve momentum. And that if you stop the amount of time that you're second guessing, if you can calm that back a little bit using some of the techniques of improv that people can get to launch faster. And my hypothesis is that if people can get to launch faster and then from there get to their first customer faster, that we as a city will see more businesses succeed. That if people can go from spending six months launching their business down to two days, that people will have more uh, momentum to, to keep yeah. going. For more on Nonya and her plan to bring improv to the masses, you can head to podphillyhoo.com forward slash Nonya. That's N-O-N-Y-A. Or just check out the show notes. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave Philly Who a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can also stay tuned on Twitter and Instagram at podphillyhoo and join the email newsletter at podphillyhoo.com. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was recorded at the Philly Who studio powered by CIC and was produced, edited, and hosted by me with editing by Max Graham and Lauren Hunter, associate production by Angela Gervasi, Lauren Hunter, and Jackson Neal. Special thanks to Brendan Lowry, music by Lee Rosevere, and artwork by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Till next time.